An article in the Atlantic Journal published last September said this: "Fear is in the air, and fear is surging. Americans are more afraid today than they have been in a long time." Polls. Show majorities of Americans worried about being victims of terrorism and crime, numbers that have surged over the past year to highs not seen for more than a decade. Every week seems to bring a new large or small-scale terrorist attack at home or abroad. Mass shootings form a constant drumbeat. Protests have shut down large cities repeatedly, and some have turned violent. Overall, crime rates may be down, but a sense of disorder is. Constant fear pervades Americans' lives and American politics. Trump is a master of fear, invoking it in concrete and abstract ways, summoning and validating it. More than most politicians, he grasps and channels the fear coursing through the electorate. And if Trump still stands a chance to win in November—remember, this was published last September—fear could be the key. Now, conventional wisdom suggests that fear is always a bad thing. Fear cripples us; it paralyzes us. It leaves us wondering how to act, and worrying about the future consequences of our actions. Fear distorts reality, and it gives us a perspective on life and relationships, which can lead us to defensive and destructive impulses. We seek to overcome fear. We seek to put fear. Back in its box to cast out fear with perfect love, but I want to suggest to you tonight that fear can be our friend and even our guide. It's a contentious claim, I know, but hear me out. I want to put fear under the microscope tonight and learn what we can from fear. Herman Melville's classic novel *Moby Dick* was inspired by real-life events of the early 19th century. In 1819, a large whaling vessel named the Essex set off from Nantucket on a two-and-a-half-year whaling expedition. It ran into trouble almost immediately when a large squall nearly sank the boat. Still, it continued past Cape Horn and into the South Pacific. In 1820, after a year at sea, the expedition crew came face to face with an enormous and angry whale. It was around 85 foot in length, huge, and it attacked the ship with such force that the vessel was irreparably damaged and began to sink. The crew had no option but to quickly escape in three emergency escape boats. A man named Pollard, the captain. Of the ship was faced with a difficult choice. He had three boats in the water, and about 20 men and some emergency provisions. He could either lead them off to the Marquesas and Society Islands, which were closest, or they could head south to try to be picked up by passing ships on the trade routes. His choice was determined in the end by fear. There were. Three fears for the men to consider. Firstly, it was a long way south to the trade routes, and they feared they might not make it with their inclement weather and winds. Secondly, they had scarce provisions. They feared that whatever direction they set off in, they may run out of food and water before they reached any destination. Finally, 
the Marquesas and Society Islands were rumoured to be populated by cannibals and their men feared that a grisly death may await them there. A difficult choice was to be made and there were fears to face in every direction. Now in 2005, a poll was conducted in the US to find out what people most feared. The top 10 in order were these. Number one, terrorist attacks, then spiders, then death, then failure, then war, then criminal or gang violence, then being alone, then the future, and finally nuclear war. It's perhaps unsurprising that terrorist attacks were top of the list. It was, after all, only four years since the attack on the Two Towers. And the US was already engaged in the war on terrorism. But it's interesting what else was on the list. Spiders, number two. Failure, being alone, the future. Peculiar, perhaps, that nuclear war was even on the list. Perhaps that's a long-standing fear of an older generation who had lived through the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. But it did demonstrate to me that our fears can be irrational. Fears uh, manifest in certain phobias, but fear can also be rooted in our experience. The person who has suffered a sequence of broken relationships in which a partner has left them may fear being alone and being powerless to do anything about it based on what has happened to them in the past. Fear defines our behavior and our choices. If we suffer a phobia of heights, we will probably choose to avoid being near the top of tall buildings, going on international flights or crossing high bridges. If we have a fear of being left by a romantic partner, we will either avoid romantic attachments or we might scupper romantic relationships by our own behavior so that we needn't get too deeply attached and therefore be exposed to the risk of abandonment. We might leave before we can be left. Now, of course, on the other hand, fears can afford us appropriate protection. A fear of being burned will prevent us from getting too close to the fire. A fear of being cut and injured will make us careful with sharp knives. Fear will sometimes pump our bodies full of adrenaline, that fight-or-flight hormone that enables us to run away fast should we need to, or perhaps exercise uncommon strength to protect ourselves. Fear of being hurt or injured in an environment where aggression and conflict are rising is a powerful force for self-preservation. Fear in these situations may well be our friend and our protector. Fear can be both local and global. We see a good deal of fear narratives in relation to international policy at the moment. Trump's travel ban proposal seems to have been based largely on the fact that there are bad dudes out there trying to get into America. Our refusal to offer hospitality to refugees in response to the refugee crisis is surely based upon a fear of who may come into our country. Fear of not having enough economic resources to go around. Fear that our quality of life may have to suffer to make space for others. Indeed, Brexit, the decision to leave the EU, 
with all of its freedom of movement principles is largely based upon those same fears. Global fears. And then there's the fears which affect us more directly, local if you like. The fear of having to interact with people that you don't like. People with whom you disagree. The fear of nationalistic, nimbyish people. Or a fear of liberal do-gooders. A fear of illiberal conservatives. Or a fear of self-righteous liberals. And then, of course, there's FOMO. The fear of missing out. That's a social fear in many ways. The Urban Dictionary defines it as this. The fear that if you miss a party or event, you will miss out on something great. E.g., even though he was exhausted, John's FOMO got the best of him and he went to the party. FOMO also drives our consumer and lifestyle habits. Whether it's by spending our money on the latest must-have smartphone or on an experience, like traveling abroad to see our favorite pop band in a football stadium in an international city. FOMO drives much of the travel industry. Exciting social media posts sent via 4G from some hiking trail in the Aztecs drives a sense that these are must-have experiences. And if you're not having them, you're missing out. In fact, much more of this comes down to our fear about our own identity. The fear that our very personhood will be perceived as being a simple sum of our accumulated experiences. If we settle into a routine job with routine hours and a routine family, we're settling for second best. We fear that we may be missing out on being the person we were truly meant to be. We fear that we are not pursuing our dreams and living the authentic life. We not only fear that we may be missing out, we fear that others may perceive us as missing out. We fear that we might be boring. And consumer capitalism trades upon all of these fears. Every commercial and advert that we see is using these powerful fears to try to sell us something. If there's a sign of hope, it's the green shoots of a movement committed to environmental sustainability, so less travel, digital fasts, so less gadgets and less time connected to social media and the FOMO that it breeds, and perhaps even a growing commitment to a simplicity of lifestyle, less stuff to entertain us, more time for relationships and creativity. You see, at the root of fear lies a story that we tell ourselves about the kind of person that we want to be. Fear is rooted in the possible futures that we imagine for ourselves. Fear has to do with how we envisage things turning out, how the story of our life will unfold. Fear always plays upon the imagined stories of our lives that we wish to avoid. So at the close of 1820, what did Pollard, captain of the sunken Essex whaling ship, decide to do with his three boats and his 20 men? What direction did they take? Which fear drove their decision? Pollard wanted to head to the Marquesas and Society Islands. They were almost certainly the closest lands and afforded the best chance of survival. He feared that they did not have sufficient provisions to survive the long journey south to the trade routes. But Pollard's first mate, a man named Owen Chase, had heard that the Marquesas and Society Islands were populated by cannibals. He and the rest of the crew 
were determined that they should avoid the islands at all costs. Turns out later that their fears were unfounded. Documents showed that traders had been visiting the islands without incident. But their fear of a grisly death at the hands of barbarous, exotic tribes was greater than their fear of starvation. And so they set off south. And in only a few weeks, they discovered that their meager rations had left them on the brink of starvation. One man went mad with hunger and thirst and died overnight. How did the other men respond? Owen Chase wrote in a journal, Humanity must shudder at the dreadful recital of what came next. Irony of ironies, he continued to explain that the crew, quote, separated limbs from his body and cut all the flesh from the bones, after which we opened the body, took out the heart, and then closed it again, sewed it up as decently as we could, and committed it to the sea. Then they roasted the man's organs on a flat stone and ate them. Their fears of cannibalism were realized, but not perhaps as they had expected, rather in their midst. Indeed, their unfounded fears about cannibalistic islanders had perhaps planted a seed of a thought in their minds, so that even as they fled from cannibalism, they actually drifted towards it. Fear is sometimes described as false evidence appearing real. They believed false evidence about these islands. Fears are always future. If they are realized, if they happen, they're no longer fears. They're just bad things that we wish to avoid. But I said at the beginning that fear can be our friend and our guide. Well, what did I mean? Well, we've already seen that fear can protect us with its valuable self-preservation instinct. Fight-or-flight adrenaline really is a vital part of our physiology. But how can fear be our guide? Well, fear tells us what we value and what we desire. As we imagine possible futures for ourselves, even those that we fear, we can discern from those futures the futures that we fear, we can discern from those the futures for which we long. We can learn from our fears what we really desire for our own future. Now, like so many things, fear is a great servant and a terrible master. You know, your smartphone can be a great servant, but if you get addicted, it's a terrible master to live for. It's the same with food, money, all kinds of things. And fear is similar. If we can get it out from the driving seat of our lives and put it under the microscope, we can begin to analyze our fears and learn from them what we truly desire and hope for. Fear can help us understand what we value. And in doing so, it can be our teacher. Fear of failure may reveal to us an unhealthy drive for success. Tackling this root desire for success may eradicate our fear of failure. It may not be the fear which is at fault in us at all, but rather the misplaced desire. More positively, our fear of loneliness may help us to understand the value of steadfast quality relationships in our lives. And once we realize the importance of our relationships, we may be able to prioritize the behaviors and attitudes which help our relationships flourish. 
We may seek out long-term, stable and nourishing relationships with friends, with family, rather than the quick thrill of a whirlwind romance. In his letter to the Roman Christians, written in the first century, the Apostle Paul wrote, And we rejoice also in our sufferings, for sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. We might paraphrase these words for our purpose. We rejoice in our fears, for fears help us realize our desires. And desires build determination, and determination gives us hope for the future. Fear, like suffering, can help us realize what truly matters in our lives, can reveal our true desires, and can give us the determination to work towards the best possible future that we desire. Fear can breed hope. And hope does not disappoint, St. Paul claims, because God has poured his love into our hearts. Fear can be our friend and our guide and can lead us to hope and to pray for that inexhaustible love that flows from heaven into our hearts.